A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. Right off the bat, I should mention that a lot of this episode comes from a book called The Jewish Alchemist by Raphael Patai. It's just that was my main source uh, for a lot of these guys to even go off and consider them as like, oh, yeah, let me see what else I can find on Abraham or Moses or whatever. Um, And some of these we've mentioned before, some of these characters. But this episode will add another major piece to the puzzle of understanding the history of alchemy and many, many alchemical references. Because today it's easy to forget that at one point the Bible was uh, taken as gospel. <laughs> so to speak. Did, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I got it. No, I mean, <laughs> but, but, but seriously, science, like scientific knowledge, wasn't necessarily... <laughs> now I can't... <laughs> okay, but like, science... So, hold on, you're so lame. <laughs> <laughs> but science, in quotes, like scientific knowledge wasn't necessarily thought to be discovered and invented but rather revealed divinely. Like we've said that many, many times on the show. Knowledge came from God. I mean, alchemists definitely, well, at least a big branch of alchemists believe this. So when we really try to put ourselves in the shoes of alchemists throughout history, from the 4th century to the 18th century, it's too easy to take our separation of church and state or the separation of science from, from religion for granted, because, I mean, remember until about 1872 or so, when people started to definitively date Sumerian cuneiform, people thought that the Bible was the oldest book in history. People thought that the Bible was the oldest written thing that we have. So, I mean, that that's just to kind of paint you a picture of how important the Bible was as a source. Even if they they fought the church, everything was seen in relation to it, you know, even if they hated it, let's say. Uh, But in this episode, we'll try to give you a much better idea of where the alchemists from the early modern period, that's, you know, 15, 1600s, where they thought from their own historic perspective, that is the history of alchemy, where they thought that came from, going all the way back to and in their eyes mentioned in the Bible. And in fact, this episode can sort of work out as a tool to understand some of the previous and future episodes just a little bit better. A lot of our references in alchemy will get cleared up here because of this show and our look at the biblical connection to alchemy. Uh, We want to really take a close look at the Jewish alchemists and their influence on the field as a whole over the uh, over the centuries that were to come uh, from this. So which is actually kind of a hard thing to do, you know, when you're having something uh, with something Travis, you and I have been trying to work at, which is, you know, the Jewish alchemists, the Middle Eastern alchemists. They're very, very important, but sometimes mm-hmm. there's just not that information that we can hold on to yeah, or it, easily it, yeah. reference. It's some of the very earliest things we have, period. Like Zazobos of Panopolis either was Jewish or de- definitely was very familiar with the religion. And um, and then, and, you know, he writes of Miriam the Jewess, who is, well, that's why she's called that. And then, and it, it goes forward from there, but, but sources are scant. I mean, we just don't have a lot of written records. Now... Um, I mentioned before that Muslims and Christians tried to take try to make alchemy work within their own worldviews. 
And some of the easiest way to do that is make them seem like this uh, Hellenistic philosophy, okay? Like this this ancient Greek philosophy, which includes like Plato and Socrates and everything, um, to kind of make that seem like it was actually started by Jews. Because that way you can say, oh, this was, you know, th- these people either got the knowledge from the Bible or, you know, from the same God that we got the Bible from, or... Uh, you know, it was even divinely given to them. So there's nothing wrong with being a Muslim and an alchemist. And there's nothing wrong with being a Christian and an alchemist. If, if you know, if it goes, if you can date it back to Judaism. So there was a, both in the Arab world, and then the the Christians kind of took it from that. There was a, there was a big drive to do this, always, to make it jive with Islam and then later Christianity. The, the prophets and the kings of the Old Testament um, these they knew the secret art themselves, so they were they were you know divinely given alchemy, but but yeah, so we we just see these Old Testament figures being recast as alchemists, as people that knew the secret of how to make the philosopher's stone, how to live forever, live longer. Uh, remember, people in the old alchem in the Old Testament had really long lives, like Methuselah lived to I don't know a thousand years or something, so that that was also explained in terms of alchemy. And because of that, the following got drafted to be really be post-mortem alchemists, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, just thinking off the top of my head here, Adam, uh, Tubal Cain, a descendant of Cain, um, uh, who was very good at metalworking. That was one of the, the things that was mentioned in the Bible there. Mm-hmm. Um, Moses, all right, you know, um, and then Solomon. You know, of course, yeah. we talked about King Solomon's mind and all this other. Inf- yeah, you know. it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination, does it, to think like, oh, he might have. You know, he was so wealthy. Maybe God and 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 you know, God gave him wisdom, right? So, what wisdom did he give him? Because his wisdom then led to riches. It's almost impossible I, to not. If you're an alchemist looking at this, it's almost impossible not to see it. Exactly, and I think if if you go back to the Old Testament and you're looking at. Uh, the connection that the chosen people had, the Jewish uh, mm-hmm. nation considered to be the chosen people, uh, they, there was always somebody there that had a con- was able to have a conversation with God. Mm-hmm. Either it was coming from God just to you, and, and then uh, there might be opportunities for you to have that conversation and go back yeah. to God in that sense. And that really is a, a, a foundational or a keystone to what we see in alchemy through the ages, that there's supposed to be that kind of conversation, so to speak. And mm-hmm. the Jewish population, this was very, very important for that to be a recipient of God's word. So starting in the Middle Ages, you know, this basically was all going through as alchemy started to really get its foothold during uh, in Europe, when it hit Europe. Uh, the transition started for Christian alchemists to seek out the Jewish sage, you know, because they, they were re- recipients of these, you know, great words of God. And so you need to go to, you know, you're going to take your car to a mechanic. You're not going to take it to a librarian, right? So, uh, you know, if you have a problem with the car. So you're going to go right to the source. And we see this um, through the Kabbalah in general. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, th- this really did kind of become a tradition. We see this with, um, oh, there's so many examples. I don't want to spoil, but but just like Nicholas Flamel, who, you know, had this book in Hebrew and, and you know, had to get it translated, had to find a Jewish scholar to translate it. This this really became entrenched. So you you, if you were to study alchemy, you would go south or east and seek a Jewish scholar, preferably an alchemist directly. But um, you know, Kabbalists, you know those those just any kind of occultists were obviously very popular, and this tradition luckily gives us some insight into Jewish thought of the period. It's it's kind of neat because people sought this out. 
So especially Jewish alchemical thought. We um, we've seen this. We've uh, where we've pointed out that there's uh, Hebrew letters now and then. There's names for the divine angels and demons. There's a lot of there's a lot of Hebrew influence, including the characters. And we start to see like these Latin Christians writing down these Hebrew characters, and it's obvious they don't quite know how to pronounce them, or, or you know they're just copying what they see. But yeah, that that this is what grew out of that. Yeah. Now we've we've already given at least a dozen examples of this in our podcasts of Christian alchemists learning Hebrew. Uh, Ramon Lul being one of my favorite. But let's back up here and kind of go back to the beginning. I should. Uh, we've done a whole episode on Zosmos Panopolis. Um, but yeah, let's bring him up in in this context now. Right. So Zosimos Panopoulos uh, really noted the fact that alchemical expertise came from the Jewish population, right? From, mm-hmm. the, from the sages, the Jewish sages. Uh, again, in the uh, this is also to be known as the oldest alchemical text in existence today. And oh, so Travis, okay. what what and so Travis, what was that oldest text that we, we were speaking about that, again, right? Yeah, it's the it's the Leiden Papyrus, I guess, because it's in Holland or just in the Netherlands somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And he also spoke very highly of Miriam the Jewess, and he also uh, said the Jews had a, a higher understanding than the Egyptians. Now, that's not a mic drop. I don't know what else is, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the Egyptians talk about, you know, this whole deal because, you know, the Jews were considered to be slave population to the mighty Egyptians. And, to, you know, if I can take a, a saying from, from an American slave after the American Civil War, looks like the bottom rail's now on top, right? Uh-huh. So, um, you know, that's that's really interesting sort of um, talk that Zosimus Panopoulos would say because uh, that really is really kind of putting in a pecking order about where the Jewish uh, sages really rank, right? So actually, it's fun to kind of to really break down what Zosimus says here, because he wrote that the Jews were, were the only ones to get the sacred knowledge of alchemy from the Egyptians. If you were kind of to relate that to maybe in the Christian sort of sphere of things, remember the Gnostics? They were the ones that were only allowed to understand God's mm-hmm. word. You know, yeah, and through, this is that this that, is that same time it. period same exactly. Way, same yep. thing. Yep. There, there had to be basically uh, centers of knowledge that the rest of the average folks just you know could not really be part of. And um, they, so, if you were an alchemist of any salt, then you went after these sages for sure. So you know he's saying the Egyptians you know had it first, right? So that puts them that they had to get that the Jews had the Jews had to get that knowledge from somebody. It was the Egyptians. But he's also saying that the, the Jews had surpassed the Egyptians in their knowledge set and were now the best people on earth to really deal with the, the science of alchemy, right? So let's just to see if we can get this straight. Because Zosimos was all of the following. Hellenic Egyptian in the Ptolemaic Egypt, possibly a Jew, certainly a Gnostic, which is one of the which is own sort of can of worms you can open up here, because that doesn't really mean of one single belief set. And also he was a hermeticist, a big one. Yeah. In fact, yeah, I always kind of wondered why um, or how he saw Jews being the best at alchemy, living with Hermes Trismegistus, because he really was, I mean, he really was a, a hermeticist. Like he, he, he wrote a lot about that too. And, and this character has more Greek and Egyptian roots, not Jewish ones. But Zosimos does make this somewhat clear. And this is, again, important in understanding all future alchemy from, from him going forward, from the Arabs and Persians to medieval monks to alchemists in the Renaissance and into the early modern period, that the Hermetic and Jewish relationship got rewritten 
distilled and kind of reconjoined back into alchemy many, many times. Like the winding snakes of the, yeah, you know, like that poetry there. <laughs> like Medici brought back a Jewish influence in a big way in the Renaissance. So we've covered a lot of this, that time period on the podcast, that Italian wave of alchemists. There was a Jewish influence there. And then that's also when Kabbalah rose up that came straight out of Florence and, you know, those those cities. Now, Hermeticism and Jewish influence didn't get erased throughout all of history until chemistry as a field tried purposefully to erase, you know, that past because, you know, whatever. I mean, for good reason, no judgment here. That's just, that's, you know, people tried to really look at science and say, why do we need uh, these, these strange beliefs, obviously. But just keep in mind here that there's a Hermetic influence and a Hebrew influence throughout all of alchemy. And it's not always the same influence at given times. So Zosimos had both influences, which might have been very different than the same influence in uh, Medici's time in northern Italy in the Renaissance. So just a kind of it's a constant factor to keep in mind when discussing different periods of alchemy. To um, so in other words, if you if you look deep enough, you'll see that there that the the Jewish fingerprints are there as far as uh, what what they were to give to to alchemy in the sense that you will see some of that even with the evolution and change as time goes on you're still going to be able to see some of the that yeah. influence it's like another way is um you know kind of the way that we've spoken about astrology here and there where we're saying like it meant one thing here and something possibly totally different uh there it just because it, it just throughout the the ages the thought kept evolving and um you know changing and n- new sources came in so um yeah but but again to kind of bring it back to the this early these early sources the laden papyrus had magic and alchemy itself attributed to moses so also it also mentioned hermes trismegistus but also moses so one of the very oldest alchemical records we have already mentions um, a central biblical figure, which means it obviously gave later Muslim and Christian scholars ammunition when defending alchemy. So this is neat. I mean, it's the, this is part of the reason why alchemy survived, because if it was just over-the-top pagan Hellenistic, it might have been shot down by the monks, but um, this, this, you know, gave its defenders uh, some... Yeah, now, I should also say, uh, it was also fodder for, for some that hated alchemy, because a lot of people in the Middle Ages especially, well, I mean, there's different periods of this, but when anti-Semitism kind of crept up, um, but those that hated the Jews, that also gave them fodder against alchemy. So there's a it's a double-edged sword that makes history, you know, even more complicated. Jews in this meaning would be like they would be kind of having evil sort of secret knowledge that, that like, they were sorcerers or something. On the history of Germany, I go into, like, blood libel and all these things. Like, they they really were believed to have a super, be like, have supernatural powers, kind of like witchcraft, but always bad, evil stuff. And and that, that led to pogroms and all kinds of bad stuff. So... When, you know, when alchemy fell out of favor, then like when the frauds and charlatans of alchemy were easily compared, uh, they were just kind of thrown in, lumped in with anti-Semitic thought of the day. And um, yeah, so, so Jews in this scenario believed to, uh, they were they were taking the wisdom from Egyptian glassmaking to make precious metal lookalikes, kind of like a, like, but as fake like as a fraud, as right. well as as the art of making alloys of metal appear to be silver, silver or gold. So it, it just instantly would flip. Like, oh, if, well, alchemy is a negative thing because it's a Jewish thing. That's just something that that happened in history. 
if you want to know more, that's all I'm going to say about that here, really. We, you know, we want to keep going. But uh, if you want to learn more about the um, anti-Semitism throughout the ages with a focus on Germany, then I, I did a long hour and a half episode um, on, on, you know, how and why that changed from all the way up to the Nazis' time, basically. Um, but in this case, there was, you know, if, you've, if you realize that your gold is alchemist gold, then you might, yeah, you might start to have some anti-Semitic words, I guess, in, in, throughout, throughout history. But there's other factors um, that kind of give Jewish uh, scholars of the time their gravitas and alchemy. Uh, well, one, one thing that really binds us all together, uh, Travis, is language. And if there's a common tongue that can bind an empire uh, together, you know, we can use that as a reference to Latin, uh, binding the – mm-hmm. especially several different eras. You're talking about the imperial Roman times. Uh, we're not talking about that so much. We're talking about the Holy Roman times yeah, uh, where, right. where Latin is the common tongue. And you know, it's one of those things where you know, the anti-Semitism – uh, is later that is attached really to to the alchemy sort of backlash um, came into it with the English and French and German uh, through one particular filter which was the Latin tongue right mm-hmm. so actually everything that was older than the 12th century came from the Arabic area mostly and uh, with some Greek influences in the Byzantine Empire um, so there's that's where the misconception comes in that it must be kind of linked somehow uh, but later. Uh, Christians in the medieval period and and later after that didn't really always know this. Right. That was yeah. lost education when it when the fall of mm-hmm. Rome kind of comes in and we're in the dark ages, quote unquote. Uh, there's a lot of lost history there. And over the time, it was it was something to believe that the the original was from the Hebrew, when in fact that they were not, and so they were really Greek. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so so as it goes, added to the mysticism of alchemical texts. Um, also make, making it uh, easier to argue that they had the same authority or at least close to it as the Bible. Right. And then also yeah. because they led anti-Semites to exaggerate the Jewish influence. Add all that up together. That's kind of what the, the, the atmosphere was like at the time. All of those points were important points uh, when discussing the influences of alchemy throughout the centuries. But it's also important to point out that all three of those, for at least 1,500 years or so, um, are based on false understanding of who the alchemists from the late antiquity were. Yeah, right, yep. Okay, so let's point out one more pitfall. By this time of alchemy, the Jews are still living in Egypt, and the Middle East had become very Hellenized. Right? They had not only translated their holy texts into Greek, but they also started writing in Greek more than the Hebrews did. So yes, mm-hmm. some of the alchemists could have Jews, but uh, um, but for the most part, the text would still be in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we really want to point this out because there have been just uh, all these sorts of false beliefs regarding alchemical sources, and it does get confusing depending on who you're reading or yeah. what you're trying to get from it about what the influences really were. And different false beliefs throughout history can can really perpetuate these problems, right, Trav? So, mm-hmm. you know, let's just kind of put a, a stopper in that if we can to give you a better idea about what some of these uh, um, influences really are. But I came across some of the wrong revisionist views and, and the understandings of the origins and the alchemical texts of, of this time. No alchemical works in Yiddish, all right? So, but yes, in, Ju- in uh, Judeo-Arabic and Ladino, which is a sort of Spanish version of the Yiddish uh, language. So there's that there too. 
Mm-hmm. So again, this this does not so so alchemy really doesn't go back further than Hellenistic Egypt. Um, only then did people start to attribute alchemical knowledge to biblical figures, and like we see with Zosimos. Um, Zosimos writes, for instance, that Adam had four elements, four cardinal points. There's so there's just almost like a. It's not Kabbalah, but it's almost like a sort of Kabbalah. There's like more meaning, more meaning to the name, um, like the four elements, like the alchemical beliefs. And we have Neoplatonists, uh, Olympiodorus, who also says that Adam was the first, the, the first person to call out the four elements or, you know, have control of the four elements. Um, and then from then, we have many alchemists that we talked about, Latin alchemists, um, saying that Adam is the red earth, the philosophical mercury, Adam is sulfur, Adam is the soul, um, Adam is the natural fire, Eve is, and then Eve is the counterpoint, like Eve is the white earth. So when, it, when it's uh, mixed red and white, we see Adam and Eve, right? You get it? So Eve is I the earth it. of life, <laughs> Eve is philosophical mercury, um, which Adam is too. You know, there's there's... You know, all, Eve is the spirit. So there's, then we see you know a shift in different um, beliefs or what they stand for throughout time. But but it keeps coming back. So you know, Adam and Eve, and and the idea of them, and this, and then the, you know, comparing them to some chemical process that's happening, um, and then Adam himself being the first person to receive the alchemical knowledge. Now this is so in this line of thinking, there's a direct line of progression from. Him from Adam straight down to Noah to Aaron to Bezalel to David to Solomon to Jeremiah to Baruch to Ezekiel to Daniel other prophets dot dot dot. By the 16th century, alchemy could say to go back to the beginning of man with divine origin. That's what we're talking about when we talk about these people. Um, what alchemy meant to them, okay? Especially yeah, I mean throughout its history, but. By the Middle Ages and after, after it went through that Latin filter, it was just, it is as important as the Bible. This knowledge goes way back to Adam, straight from one generation to the other, uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, this, this, we're, we're about to do an episode on Michael Meyer. He's, he's a chapter in the book. He writes, he's one of the people in the Renaissance and after the early modern period um, to, to comment on alchemical origin that goes back to, to Adam. Um, and even describes this whole thing as an, as a chemical recipe, as, as an alchemical recipe, basically. Well, that really kind of gives you a new spin on the idea of, you know, the making of woman from Adam's rib, right? You know, it's like you have you have one one thing coming from Adam who can represent everything else on the alchemical chart to be yeah, making another. Actually, yeah, actually, yeah. One becomes two. That's the axiom of Miriam is like one becomes two, two becomes four, sure. whatever it is. It's four. a whole yeah, spin so on like, it, doesn't yep, it? Yep, there yeah. you go. Even the Teatrum Chemicum uh, had two chapters on this, uh, a famous composition of the alchemical texts that we've mentioned before many times, actually, on, on several shows. The Philosopher's Stone uh, equals uh, uh, Minitus, Mendus, uh, which also equals the world in miniature, or a microcosm of a microcosm, if you will. And uh, th- so basically the first chapter of, of Genesis is, pre- is very, very important in understanding what was going on in the alchemist, alchemist's mind, right? So this was thoroughly uh, entrenched by the golden age of alchemy, and to ignore this would be a huge mistake. Yeah. Paracelsus also believed that Adam received divine alchemical wisdom and also that this of the elixir of life. All right, boy, really adding into all the stuff we know <laughs> from mm-hmm. every show, isn't it, uh, that we've done so far? Uh, and again, a reminder that Miriam the Jewish 
was was also at this time definitely thought of to be the sister of Moses himself. Right. Yeah. In, Paul, in Psalms uh, 118.22, Solomon disallows the philosopher's stone. The stone which with with which the builders rejected is become the chief cornerstone. Yeah, that's how so that was. In, yeah, so that's that was interpreted as like, oh, Solomon is you know disallowing the yeah, like he's banning alchemy. Yeah, a line in the sand. The longevity of the antediluvian biblical characters are because of the stone itself, right? So we brought it upon ourselves, I guess, to have this great flood. Um, so one of the characters that we we talked about um, on, on our show is uh, Elias Ashmole. And uh, he mentioned that Solomon, uh, Moses, Hermes Trismegistus uh, were all were, were the only adepts that we were talking about with this. So another word for this is the Tetragrammaton, which is the word of God. So we mentioned that Adam had the power. So Seth, Adam's third son, is the ad- adept who taught, according to Agatha Damon, who we did an episode on. Remember the, the father of poison, maybe? I don't remember. Um, but uh, Tubal Cain in Genesis 4.22 the Bible says the forger of every cutting instrument of brass and iron. So, I mean, he was a, like a Smith, a, a you know, blacksmith or something. And alchemists grabbed onto that. So the book of Enoch, the one where the angels come down and have the kids uh, with the women, of course, right? You remember that story? Yeah. <laughs> um, di- didn't just have kids, but they also gave them charms and enchantments, uh, taught them about uh, cutting of roots and plants. Azazel taught men knowledge of the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of precious stones and all the coloring tinctures. Now, uh, also uses astrology in this in this uh, story as well, and also how to read the clouds and other divinations. In fact, mm-hmm. it's from Zosimos' uh, description as these angels teach mankind metalworking, uh, where he uses the word kima or kima, right, which is another word for alchemy. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually this. So Kema is what became alchemy. That word, that's how we get the word alchemy. This was actually a description of a biblical text when, you know, of, 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 uh, it's a commentary on the book of Enoch. So, yeah, I mean, it's, so alchemy is central to this, this biblical stuff. Ham, uh, who's the son of Noah, the notion existed that it was uh, named after Ham, uh, who was the first practitioner. Uh, he was specifically the Hellenistic Jewish or- origin, right? Mezarim's son is Atotis, uh, also known as Hermes or um, Mercurius, who became the king of Thebes. Alchemy could have also started with the wife of Noah or Sibylla or, or uh, Nimrod's wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which now that brings us to Abraham and Sarah, because they were also alchemists, obviously. Now, <laughs> no, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait a minute, wait so a minute. <laughs> Genesis 13.12 states that Abraham was rich in cattle, silver, and gold. Abraham was also not immune to the suspicions of alchemists that he was himself an alchemist, okay? According to this line of thought, he learned alchemy in Egypt from Hermes himself. Now, some that disagree with um, this, the whole Alexander the Great legend of the Emerald Tablet saying that Sarah took the hands of the dead uh, Hermes in a cave of Hebron. So that's this, uh, there's there's this uh, really famous Hermetic legend um, that involves Alexander the Great. Um, But yeah, so some, so some kind of uh, say that it, that this Sarah was like the biblical Sarah of Abraham and 
um, tying Sarah to the whole hermetic, you know, emerald tablet and, and just to the most central core of hermeticism, which is the emerald tablet and the as above, so below and, and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, so there the, even even Abraham and Sarah were not immune to being to being suspected of uh, being alchemists. So in Genesis 20, 10 through 22, uh, it tells us of Jacob's dream with the ladder to heaven, Jacob's ladder. We're all pretty familiar with that story, yeah. I believe. Uh, it also mentions that he had this dream uh, uh, in Bethel while sleeping on a stone. Upon waking, Jacob anointed the stone and concluded a pact with God. Must be an alchemist. There you go. Well, I, I, that's, that's an alchemist. But business. seriously, yeah. In the Middle Ages, that like that's if you say the word stone in the Bible, they're like, oh, that that must be. He's that's why he had that dream. You know, he used a sto- stone right. as a pillow. So yep. so one so one can find an al- alchemical art and illustrations of a young man sleeping uh, with a stone for a pillow. Sometimes even with Jacob's ladder, so, sort of mentioned in the background. Yeah. So you, you'll see that in a lot of these. Uh, and, and I have seen paintings. that. And yeah, and I always wonder. So the the more I learned about this, the more a lot of those alchemical images kind of came into focus. I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, this comes from this biblical passage that, you know, Jacob's, I have seen Jacob's ladder and wondered like, what does that have to do with anything? So yeah, he's napping on the, he's napping on the philosopher's stone. Yep. So these biblical beliefs within alchemy were held right up until alchemy's end of the end of the 18th century. We're talking a long time Mm -hmm. that people were holding on to this, right? So that's really important to note that in this podcast tonight, that this is something that just stayed with with humanity for quite some time. Yeah, uh, Genesis, if you read Genesis 36, uh, verse 39, uh, to an alchemist's eyes, other kings may have known the secret First uh, Chronicles one fifty, the wife of Hadar, king of Edom, was quote Mehedabel, daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahan. Now Mezahan, and there's there's a line above the e, so I don't know how to. I probably butchered that. Sorry, um, but that means water of gold. That's like oh, wow, ooh, okay. potable water. Yeah. yeah. So there's <laughs> that's for an alchemist. That was like when they figured out what that meant. Yeah. So like gold and water. This is obviously it could be re- referring to water with gold dust in it, or even just the idea of golden water. But alchemists took to mean this is potable gold, like the elixir of life, like the philosopher's stone. Um, and, and there's a theory mentioned by Patai, that's the author of, of the, the Jewish alchemist. And he says that when it was translated um, to greed, like Mizahav became metabol, like transmutation. So it really took on this alchemical meaning. Um, but okay, I already mentioned the example of Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years. Well, obviously, you know, alchemists thought that must be because of the elixir of life. Um, he just, you know, he had the secret. And now that you're in the right mindset, okay, to see what the alchemists were seeing when reading the Bible, let's take a look at Job. Here's another, here's another example of this in Job 22, verse 22 through 25. Uh, if you return uh, to the Almighty, you will be restored. If, if, if you remove witness, wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir, Ophir to the rocks in this ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the, the, the choicest silver for you. So just by reading that, Travis, you're, you're yeah. just talking about <laughs> all these precious minerals that we're talking that are uh, chief, in, uh, chief of uh, alchemical thought, right? 
So you can also imagine that these are seen as a recipe right then and there, uh, almost right down to a T. Yeah. But certainly Job had the alchemical um, within his grasp, and if he returned it to the Almighty, then that would seal the deal. So Job's daughters were Jemima, uh, uh, Keza, and Kiran Hapuk, where uh, Kiza equals still. Kiran Hapuk means equals uh, the retort with an inverted uh, sort of horn, which is also a puk stone also known as uh, a horn for strength, and of the stone itself, which is the science of alchemy. So I think you have a lot of people here taking these stories and then saying, how can we equate this? Like to really alchemy? reading into yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's you know, there's, there's a lot of reading between the lines here. But this takes us, Travis, to really the, the, guy, the guy on top of the mountain, man, Moses. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Moses was in the history of alchemy from day one. Okay. And that's even, and he was mentioned as late as the 19th century in context of alchemy. I mean, so, so Moses was always a part of the history of alchemy, uh, in the Western world, always Arabic and, and Greek and, you know, Egyptian tradition. Moses was always at, so from Zazamos on, Moses was always central. Hermes Trismegistus was like, you know, contemporary of Moses, um, always central. Now, Moses was sometimes even considered to be the co-founder along with Hermes. And alchemy can even be referred to as mosaico hermetic art. That's what it was referred to as. They're talking about alchemy, saying this mosaico hermetic art. To make matters a bit murkier is that there was this pseudo-Moses in Hellenistic Egypt running around uh, writing alchemical texts. So even from earliest times, alchemists were already being confused on whether they were quoting the biblical lawgiver or this pseudo Moses alchemist. Okay, you can see you can see the confusion. All right, so Zosimus knew this was was a was a different Moses. For instance, uh, from from recent times uh, in his times, of course, but elsewhere speaks as if the Moses of great antiquity was the biblical Moses. Right. Mm -hmm. So so the domestic chemistry of Moses is in the laden papyrus. This uh, we've mentioned this before early in the in the in the uh, in the podcast tonight. This ties many alchemical recipes to Exodus 31 1 through 5 and 35 30 through 35 verses there. So to make it seem like it was the biblical Moses writing that. Mhm. Mm he's, he's even called Moses the thrice happy. Yeah, like thrice <laughs> Hermes Trismegistus, so thrice happy instead of thrice great. Yeah. Diplosis of Moses, or doubling of the weight of gold, uh, in page 32 of the Jewish Alchemists, uh, has this particular recipe, of course. Mm -hmm. And Moses was uh, even thought to maybe be just as different name for Hermes himself, Hermes yeah, Trismegistus, so, right? Yeah. So yeah. people are throwing this and getting a little bit confused, as we are <laughs> reading this. Uh, another late theory has Hermes Trismegistus, uh, Mercurius, as a disciple of Moses himself, he was instructed uncommonly well in the doctrine of Genesis transmitted by Moses. And that's in page 34 of this text. Um, look at this part. The golden calf is, um, is a part of the alchemical interpretation, right? It's, it's a, it says it right there, basically. Um, we talk about the worshiping of the golden calf. Um, in Exodus, when Moses came back and found them worshiping this golden calf, he took the calf, which they had made, and burnt it with fire and ground it into powder and strewed it among them uh, in the water and then uh, made the children of Israel drink it. And that's in Exodus 32, verse 20, an arium uh, portable. Yeah. 
potable gold, basically. Yeah, right there. It's potable gold. Yep, that it's right there. Potable gold, Exodus 32, verse 20. There it is. They ground up gold, put it in the water, and drank it. Okay? There it is. Right there in the Bible. <laughs> Can't so, for you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but done. And, and, and Travis, don't we have something like that in, in, in what we talked about? Would people try to do that in, uh, in the Middle Ages of drinking yeah, gold yeah. to, to uh, heal Gold issues. was actually not – this is actually something that's weirdly almost universal. It's like even Chinese alchemy had this, but um, where just gold was thought to have healing properties, even just by, you know, drinking gold dust. So, yeah, it was just a, it was just seen as a, as a really good thing. So Moses did end up with a lot of gold for his tabernacle, right? And at this point, uh, this was not lost on medieval alchemists. It right. was something that they kept bringing back and forth, right? Jabir ibn um, Hayyan also known as Geber, um, has, uh, has Moses as the founder of alchemy. And uh, Hayon is, is maybe the first in the strict tradition of the belief that he was, uh, uh, was the founder. Along with Zosimos, Democritus, Hermes, and Ag- Agatha Damon, um, etc. Go back and forth through the list of all the people we talked about on this show. Yeah, we've, uh, each one of those has their own episode. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, a uh, very common topic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Korah or Korim stole from him this secret of alchemy. Other Arab so, alchemists tried to do the same. Like uh, we've done a show on, on pseudo Madriti, for instance. Remember, um, already many in Egypt were either defending the old ways or the Christian ways or the, the monotheistic ways or ways that uh, they all sort of jive together. Some say that Moses was was taught not just by the Egyptians but also by the Greeks. I guess in a way to hurt the Greeks' feelings or something of that nature, yeah. right? Uh, um, but you, you also know that Moses had also had a reputation as a magician. I mean, think of him carrying that big staff, right? You know, and coming yeah. up with these great sort of deals. Uh, the idea spread very quickly through the Roman Empire, for instance, and it kind of latched onto that idea of a, of a powerful magician. In the 17th century, Moses, as an alchemist, was uh, entrenched within alchemist circles. From this century, we see that most people were arguing against this, though. Uh, both alchemists were trying to uh, separate the uh, Hermeticism from the Bible, and also that they were also against alchemy altogether because of the reasons we mentioned in this podcast early in the episode. So, uh, yeah, man, things things are, are are trying to be pulled apart, maybe to give it more credence to a, a science or or try to blame it exactly. more on the idea of being Jewish. You know, yeah, they sep- separate, yeah, separate the, the facts. Like these minerals handle this way, and these acids separate those facts. From the, you know, we get this knowledge from Moses. Because that's, you know, that's just, yeah. that That's that's giving the whole thing about reputation. So then there was a concerted effort to stop that. Um, but, okay, so I'll, I'll mention... Now, we're going to... We'll probably v- revisit Miriam the Jewess at some point. Because uh, I, I have a bunch more information on her. And I'm working my way through it. But I will mention the confusion or, you know, Moses' sister, Miriam. And this is... Because often, just like Zazamo seems to know that there was a pseudo-Moses right before his time, he sometimes also called or pretended like he was the Moses from the Bible. And very much like that, uh, just perhaps before Zazamos, but shortly, um, just shortly before his time or during his time, there was Miriam the Jewess. And um, yeah, we'll get a lot more, uh, we'll come back to her, but... Uh, in other episodes. We, uh, we did do a whole episode on her before, so if you wanted to learn more. Um, but in this case, she was also associated with Moses. And uh, a, a fellow in the 4th century, 
Epiphanes even describes visions of Christ to her. So he writes about her in great questions and small questions. He speaks of her telling of her visions to Jesus, and it's not exactly sure where this quote comes from. But it's interesting to note that even if this was not a real quote from Miriam, which, I, you know, it's doubted that it is, um, it still speaks of Christian legends about her a century after Zosimos, which is kind of neat. And from there, sources and legends push her back further into antiquity, you know, again, to where Miriam the Jewess becomes Miriam of the Bible. And we see her later mentioned in Arabic sources as Miriam the Copt, like someone that's Coptic, and Matron Maria Sicola. And in those legends, she's a contemporary of Jesus now, and also knew him. And um, we see, okay, we've done an episode on Austinese. There's Arabic sources that say um, she studied uh, under Austinese. Um, we'll see it. I mean, you'll see it on our, in our episode there that Austinese and Jesus lived separate, you know, centuries apart. So, this, you know, it just kind of gets murky in, in some of these legends. But um, yeah, it has her as a master alchemist. This legend definitely lived on. And by the time the sources made its way to the later Latin writings, Miriam had gone to being a contemporary of Moses himself, for sure. I find it very interesting that we have a woman that's given so much credibility in a, in a time that was a very sort of masculine sort of field, you know, and that she's she's got a place in history all throughout these histor historical uh, references. So I, I find that kind of uh, amazing in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's uh, Michael Meyer. He's he's uh, one of the people in our upcoming book uh, that was in Prague. Uh, he he wrote. He kind of debated, let's say, whether Mary Miriam was fictitious or Moses's sister or just a Jewish alchemist. And um, he comes to the conclusion in the 17th century that she's real because of the rich tradition around her, but it isn't quite sure about her being Moses' sister. And I would say modern scholars would say, yeah, she was a, a, an alchemist in the first century. That's what we said on her show. That's our best guess. Um, but yeah, he, he uh, Michael Meyer finally says it's, it's possible since she could be a prophet. She, might, she may have learned chemistry from Moses. So he leaves the options open. So, I mean, really, even in his times, and he's really debating this, he still says it's possible that she's biblical. So... Um, yeah, I mean, she's, she becomes famous again for Meyer's publication, and out of uh, – Meyer's lists a great 12 alchemists, and Miriam is the only one of those 12. So, um, yeah, clearly a, a central figure in the history of alchemy. Now, if we, we jump over to Korah, uh, uh, and Korah rebelled against Moses, uh, and he is and his men were swallowed up, and this is in um, Numbers 16. Uh, in the Midrash, Korah uh, and Haman are said to have – been the richest men on earth. Now, Korah became rich by finding one of Joseph's treasures hidden in Egypt. He died because his riches were not the gift of heaven, and that his revolt against Moses was encouraged by his wife. All right, we've <laughs> that's story, you know, of uh, <laughs> that's how it goes. Actually, yeah, <laughs> being a bad influence, right? Um, the Quran, uh, twenty-eight, verse tw seventy-six through eighty-two, uh, Karam or Korah. Uh, is thought to have been given uh, these riches because which were the knowledge was within him. Uh, Arabic commentators who also knew the Midrash and the Bible has a Quran as an adept, adept of the alchemy who learned from his wife. 
History of Alchemy episode on the uh, Quran's wife? Probably not, but maybe so. Anyway, he learned that it from he learned all this from Moses. The Arab legend tells that Moses and Aaron were given the gift of alchemy directly from God in order to cover the Ark of the Covenant in gold. They outsourced to Korah, who in in one Arabic source had him as a goldsmith, had built himself riches and palaces of walls of precious metals, yeah. and in the end, smoted by God. Yeah, so he 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 paid for his sins, I guess, of greed. Um, but yeah, so all of this was just brought back to yeah. So even the Ark of the Covenant was covered in alchemist gold. There you go. Um, so next time you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know something better now. That's right. Nazis die by <laughs> removing. Them. So, anyways, they all face melt. Uh, now, the, the Israelite judge Gideon um, he gathered dew with fleece of wool. This uh, this might tie tie this to like the the Greek uh, golden fleece kind of things. But alchemists tied this judge to the legend of you know Jason the golden fleece. Sure. By the, by the 16th century, um, by Galelmos Menes, Menes breaks down both legends and ties them together. So they, we really see this stretch of imagination almost to tie this Israelite judge to Jason, you know, which is, I mean, they're centuries apart, these stories. Uh, but, but you can see images of Jason's legend and alchemy. So it's important to recognize the, the Gideon version, too, that Gideon's fleece uh, might have been meant instead of Jason's fleece, if you see a depiction of it. Um, and then, of course, another great figure, a couple of figures here in, in order are King Dave. David was rich. Um, for, the da- for the temple, he saved up, quote, a hundred thousand talents of gold and a thousand thousand talents of silver. The dude was a talented millionaire. <laughs> Do you see what I... I see what uh, you did there, I, and I don't like it. You're like, and, I, and I'm uh, <laughs> so he was very talented. That meant he had many talents. Uh, anyways, so so yeah, I mean, so alchemists would would read this, and obviously he got his riches through the philosopher's stone. So Second Chronicles twenty nine two verse two includes the stone of Fuch, and in his inheritance list to Solomon. So along with the gold and silver, he's got this, well, it looks like a philosopher's stone, okay, to make more. Um, that's because those philosopher's stones, he was able to make silver and gold to be in Jerusalem as stones. That's, that's where they get that from. So, so 2 Chronicles one fifteen, and then also 1 Kings 10.27 says gold and silver was so common that it, it, in Jerusalem, just the common stones were gold and silver. But if an alchemist reads that same passage, they're like, oh, they, this is saying they're using the Philosopher's Stone to make gold and silver. It's a misinterpretation, clearly, but it's, that's clear proof if you're an alchemist. I see. I think people want you see, read what they want yeah, to read. That, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They just read. Yeah, exactly. They're like, you know, it just like their eyes must have lit up and be like, oh, it mentions stones in the Bible. And it, yeah, in the same sentence as gold and silver, done. So... And really, one of the, the, the big names in, in the Old Testament, we're talking about, you know, uh, King Solomon and Solomon's wisdom here is reinterpreted as including knowledge of alchemy. Now, alchemists quoted Solomon, not in the Bible, though, but needless to say, they quoted him as saying, neither did I liken her with wisdom to any precious gem, but because of all the gold on earth in her sight is is but a little sand. And silver shall be accounted as clay before her. 
Now, with that, with that, they interpreted directly as referring to the knowledge of the philosopher's stone, right? So this really comes down to this, and Zosimos attributes his writing on this production and uses the quicksilver, or mercury, um, in, the, in this way, as like not just mercury, but metallic arsenic, mm-hmm. contain the key to the great art, quote-unquote. So later in the 8th century, a, a treatise on how to make silver was attributed to Solomon. This work is from the Temple of Helos, uh, which calls for the eastern and western quicksilver and the usual 40 days. Yeah. Now, now the Song of Songs of Solomon, a very famous uh, part of the Bible, is uh, an alchemical treatise as well, uh, right there in the Bible. You can see it right there today. Uh, in, in Arabic folklore, though, Solomon gets the additional stories of Nabe Suleiman, where Solomon is the master of demons, also the Jewish folklore. This is what this, this story also lives there. Uh, and also the master of alchemy and metal, metal, metallurgy. The stone book of Aristotle has Solomon commanding ants to dig him up some red sulfur, or gold, if you will. And he also in, invented the iron plows, weapons, and utensils. In Arabian Nights, Solomon uses the, the miraculous lead seal to lock evil spirits into the bottles, also hinting at him being an alchemist. Michael Meyer, even Johann Joachim Becker, asserted Solomon as an authority on alchemy. And according to these, to these gentlemen, he actually had this stone himself. Queen of Sheba first inherited her stone from Solomon. All right. All this is coming together for you folks because it's yeah. coming together for me. <laughs> Seeing how this, uh, read what you want to read, right? Syriac writer who quotes Zosimos also said, Talismans of Solomon, like flasks, seven talismans, same as like the, sto- the storing demons, or in reference to it. All right. Here's, here's the list we have. These talismans act like prayers against demons made of electrum. Angels ordered Solomon to make these flasks. Making the flask as far from the angels is clearly as alchemical recipe with sulfur and metals, and then inscribed with a formula, burnt gold, scion, or silver, called, called of the ant, whitened copper, tender and softened iron, lead, purified silver, which is loon. In fact, take a close look at the Star of David. In the flag of Israel, for example, you'll see this. Are you sure that that's not exactly the symbols for fire, water, overlaid? Or is oh, it? Oh, what? What have what? we here? <laughs> Israel is an alchemist state. <laughs> yeah. It's an alchemical um, state. Yeah. It's, it's the alchemical symbol for wisdom and also fiery water. So Hebrew for heaven is shamayim. Um, so esh for fire and mayim for water. So even there you go. There's fiery water. That's that was often noticed by uh, noted by alchemists. So like the Star of David can actually represent quintessence or the universal matter, the fifth element. That that whole ordeal. And in the 17th century, people opposed to alchemy had had to uh, actually argue that Solomon could have gotten his riches in the usual way through mining. If you can believe that, yeah, that doesn't so, sound so, yeah. so exciting. <laughs> they actually had to argue. They're like, no, no, it doesn't have to be through alchemy. He could have gotten it other ways. But, yeah, but whether it was... Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they still didn't... You know, there was no doubt that the, the tale of Solomon was real. Just, you know, they had to give it a non-alchemical interpretation. Sure, which the is interpretation interesting. Was, yeah. was key here. 
And so this brings us to Elijah. All right, Paracelsus echoes a common belief among alchemists that Elijah know, uh, know, knows all and will reveal all in the end of days. And this comes from the Jewish influence. Elijah was, was often uh, even in the title of the works by alchemists. Mm-hmm. Um, Isaiah also, again, like Elijah and other prophets, Isaiah was thought to be an alchemist. Isaiah 54 verse 11 says, Behold, I will set the stones in fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy pinnacles of rubies and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of precious stones. And uh, yeah, so plural stones, red and white philosopher's stones is, is how that's interpreted. Sapphire is like the last stage of alchemy, the iosis or oxidation. And verse 60, uh, chapter 60, verse 17 says, for brass, I will bring gold and for iron, I will bring silver. That's pretty, that's sounds like transmutation to me. Yeah, Daniel is interpreted as, as an alchemist. Ezra, there's a Syriac collection, the Book of Ezra, the Sage Scribe, which just has, it, can names, it contains names of plants and, and planets and metals, and, and it also has an alchemical treatise. So there's, we see Ezra as a, as a biblical figure. Um, there's more. We can keep going. I think, I think we all get the point here. This, this show's looking to be almost an hour long. Uh, now. So I think this is, you definitely, if you've never read the Bible before, then you might understand why they thought uh, so much of this uh, influence, you know, this this alchemical stuff came from the Bible. Um, and, and just given the authority of the Bible, it's just so hard to understate that there were no non-believers, maybe secretly, maybe behind closed doors, but officially, the Bible was was taken as fact. It was taken as the oldest written record of mankind. Um, it was, you know, what what the priests said was often law. Um, so it's just a really important thing. And and to ignore it would be folly. If you're looking at the history of alchemy, you, you got to know your Old Testament. Simple, uh, but I think we've shown that here tonight. That's a good point. I, I and your and I your Quran. You need to know your Quran. Yeah. What? Well, it, <laughs> um, you know you. Knowing, knowing all three, the, the, the aspect of Christianity, Judaism, and, um, and um, uh, Islamic belief, you, to, have a, to have a little bit of knowledge about that is going to help you walk through about what many people thought yeah. in later times, uh, how well, to either keep, keep the alchemical uh, knowledge going, you know, that you could actually still do it without being uh, persecuted as, as a wizard or a witch. It's, it's, you know, you, you know had to have this backing. Yeah, you don't you don't have to watch TV. You don't have to listen to the radio. I don't care. But if you don't get my pop culture reference, then don't come crying to me. Okay, you can very much like that. You can read alchemy, but if you don't get that biblical reference, hey, yeah, you like you got to know this piece of the public. You got you got to know how this was interpreted. So um, yeah, that was a. I mean, that just took me forever to kind of run down and uh, prepare. I had this idea for a long time, um, and I, I finally got my hands on the Jewish alchemist, which helped a lot with that. So. Uh, there, there's going to be more to come uh, from that book, but there's also I want to uh, research a bunch of other sources for the the early Arabic time period and and uh, some other time periods. So um, I still probably wouldn't I wouldn't go to your rabbi or to your priest or preacher and just say, hey, did you know that Moses was an alchemist? I, I probably wouldn't do that, <laughs> but but just know that at some point in history, someone said that. Yeah, at some point in There's history, your show. They, you, you could have yep. a good argument if you believed that. So, yep. 
Um, other than that, uh, we just we just wrapped up our our uh, yearly review. We've been on the air for four four years now. Can you believe that? Nope. Um, we're <laughs> we're by quick. Yeah, we're 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 doing great. So we recommend to listen to that. We'll give you kind of a state of the podcast, if you will. And um, yeah, year four, we got plenty more to come. So don't worry about it. We're not dead, even if we just show up like twice a year. I mean, downloads are coming. So hey, uh, but if you want to kick us, um, get us to do more, then follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook at uh, Alchemy Podcast or uh, Alchemy Podcast News on Facebook. There's even a group where you can post your own things, and often those those things people post become ideas for shows. Uh, that that being said, we have hundreds of ideas already written down in our lists. Um, but all of that, um, we've been super busy, so we're not going to repeat everything here, but um, we do about seven podcasts now. <gasps> what? Yeah, that's that's right. So for all of those... It's not go, a full-time job either. It's, yeah. <laughs> so for all of those, go to podcastnick.com. That's podcastnik.com. Podcastnik.com. There you go. Um, and go go have a listen, see what else we've been up to. Secret Cabinet, Africa, A History, History of Germany, Bohemian Podcast. Um, and even more. So, but Travis, what if I want a t-shirt with a homunculus on it? Where do I go? Oh, there's a, there is a shop in fact, <laughs> same, same link, but yeah, we actually, the, yeah. So we have a graphic designer now that, that has been cranking out, um, designs for our shirts and stickers and there's homunculus stickers, which I don't know if they're actually Sweet. for sale yet. That's, those are, those might be part of the care package for super fans. Um, and there's, there's a hidden way to get those, but I'm not going to tell you. But uh, yeah, we got a PayPal link up. People actually asked us for PayPal and Patreon and stuff, so we have that up on the. You can support us there. You can buy the Alchemy booklet. You can buy our new Alchemy show book when it's cu- when it comes out. You can buy Curious Check Christmas from the Bohemian Podcast by myself and Pete. And um, yeah, there's. I would definitely recommend checking out the Homunculus T-shirt. That's that's pretty cool. I'm really happy with the designs yeah. that have been coming it look, out. It really looks cool. It's nice. Yeah, there's a History of Germany t-shirt now for the first time uh, with a that features a he's a vandal, I believe. Um, but he's a, he's a sophisticated vandal. Oh, he's, 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 he's having he- a, a spot of tea. He's hella sophisticated. <laughs> um, yeah, so Emperor Emperor Norton shirt's coming out later. But yeah, anyways, all of that's to the other podcast. I don't want to repeat that all here. Uh, bottom line is you guys have been great. We've seen a lot of uh, reviews on, on iTunes, which help us the very most in getting new members. People have been linking to the show from... Um, their blogs and other websites and and that 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 has brought in a lot of new listeners so first of all welcome second of all there's a lot other stuff going on um but yeah we really appreciate appreciate all the support in the last year and um well above all just thank you very much for listening take care I'm going to be very yeah, say, careful yeah. with how I pronounce that. Say, say, say fool. Like it's that, the yeah. stones of <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> That's what it... P-H... I know. Okay. Don't. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.